As you're turning to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 5 through 11. Um, Before we do our scripture reading, and as you're turning there, I do want to clarify, just because I I think for some maybe uh, I need more clarification. I need to be more clear. A couple weeks ago, uh, when we were in Philippians, uh, it, it may have sounded, or I don't want to give the impression, if I did, I apologize, I don't want to give the impression uh, that we don't need any teachers or pastors or anything of that sort. And so if, uh, if it sounded like that, let me just clear it up. Uh, I do not believe that there, there is something today that a lot of people feel like, oh, all I need is me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit, and I'm fine. I don't need the body. I don't need pastors. Uh, I just need me and my Bible. Uh, I don't believe that's biblical. I don't believe that's true. Uh, the Bible is very clear. Ephesians chapter 4 uh, talks about that God has given us evangelists, teachers, shepherds, etc. Uh, and so, yes, we, we do need the body and pastors. Uh, but I hope what was clear is that the gospel will prevail. Uh, it will continue to go forth. And in the context of Philippians uh, with Paul, whether he was alive or whether he were to die, Uh, Whether he would see them again or not, he was confident their faith would increase and the gospel would continue to be proclaimed. All right, so that is, I want to clear some things up because I know that for some, uh, there was maybe confusion there. All right, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 5 through 11. TR, come on up. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was highly exalted him, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will should bow in the heaven in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you. Let me pray for our time as uh, in God's word this evening. Fathers, we come to your word tonight. We ask that by your grace And through your spirit, you would give us understanding. Pray that Christ would be exalted as we look both as in his humility and in his exaltation. That you would be worshipped, that you would be glorified. And I pray that you would help us to know your truth. Guide my tongue that I would not speak falsehood, but instead that I would uh, speak your truth. May your word pierce our hearts. We ask that you would change us tonight, that we would worship you as we look to your word, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, For most of my early schooling, um, my favorite subject in school was math. Oh, we, we got some math fans in the house. But it, it, it was short-lived. Okay, so don't be too excited. You, you, I'm sure many of you will judge me after I tell you the story. That's okay. Um, I would say, when I say my early, I mean like first grade. I like that level math, okay? Um, that was good math, all right? It made sense. Like, you count two fingers on this hand and two fingers on this hand and you just count them and you have four fingers. I liked that math, okay? Um, And I felt like I was very good at that math, all right? Um, Then I get into high school and I'm like, all right, let's get some math done. And you know what? I did okay. Uh, You know, solve for X, not a problem um, in Algebra 1. And then uh, geometry hits. I don't even want to talk about proofs or anything like that. And then Algebra 2. I hit my wall, like literally, and, and I, I, I want to believe everyone has a wall in which they hit math, 
And some of you guys are like, I have no wall. <laughs> well, it, it, it may exist somewhere out there. You just haven't reached it yet. I felt that way until I hit Algebra 2. I know you guys are like, oh, that's it, just Algebra 2. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, up until that point, I was like 100% in like all my math classes. And then all of a sudden, Algebra 2 hit, and then I was like just trying not to fail. I don't know what it was, but I, I, it just it didn't click. I mean, there, there's... I wrote a list because I don't even remember. There, there's polynomials. Is that how you say it? There's radical expressions. They're radical. <laughs> Quadratic equations. I don't even know what that means. There's four of them, I guess. Functions. Rational exponents. Sounds good. It's rational. It's not. Like, I don't know. I, I, I still, to this day, I had to look it up. I was like, I don't even know what Algebra 2 teaches. I don't remember any of that. But one thing I do remember, at least I think, <laughs> I think it made sense was parabolas. We have any parabola fans in the house? Yeah, thank you, Isaac. Okay, just one. You and me, Isaac. <laughs> All right. A parabola, I think, and if, if you're like a mathematician and I'm wrong, just tell me later. Just, don't tell me right now. Just pretend like this is right, okay? I think a parabola is basically like like a curve, like right? Okay? Or like, And it's a reflective curve, is it? In the sense of that a set of points are equal distance. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at our engineer. Okay, good. All right? So it, it, they're equal distance, right? It's a parabola. And so it could be like uh, a parabola where it, it starts low, and then it goes high, and then it goes back low, right? Uh, so like McDonald's is like two parabolas, is it? Maybe? Okay, kind of, sort of. Uh, so that, that's one. Or like it could be flipped. Like you start high, and then you go low, and then you go back high. That's also a parabola, right? It could, it could go either way. Why am I bringing this up? The parabola, Okay. This passage that we just read, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, uh, has been known by some as the great parabola. The reason why is because it takes, uh, it it starts high, and then it goes low, and then it returns back to the top. It starts with Christ in heaven for all of eternity. And then Christ swoops down to the lowest point, death on a cross. But he doesn't stop there. Then God highly exalts Christ. And he places him high. He places him uh, in the highest position in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we end up way high up here. And it's such a, a magnificent and beautiful passage that talks about the humility of Christ. But really we need to approach it with great humility ourselves. In fact, over the centuries, this passage specifically has caused many controversies, many questions, many debates, which is somewhat ironic, I think, because the context of this passage is that of unity, if you remember from the last couple of weeks. And so we're not going to get into all the debates. Uh, If you want to talk about that afterwards, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about all the debates on very specific words and what what it means and etc. But I really think for us to understand this passage correctly, we have to keep it within its context. Remember, Paul did not write this to create debates. Paul wrote this to further strengthen the unity of the church. So remember the context. Paul is saying that as citizens of heaven, you ought to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that is in line with your citizenship. And doing so, this will cause persecution. This will bring suffering from the outside. But not only that, you must be aware of disunity from within. We looked at this last week. And he said, look, don't be opposed to one another. You already have opposition from the outside. But instead, be united together. And in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Do you remember this last week? We have to have humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. And then now here we are in verse 5. And he says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. All right, so this is kind of a hinge point. He's connecting what he just said about having humility and counting others more significant than yourself. And then where he's going in which he's talking about Christ. And so he says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we just said they need to put on humility, and now he's given them an example, the greatest example of humility, and that is found in Christ. He's saying, look, you are a citizen 
of heaven. You are in Christ. And therefore, look to Christ. Adore Christ. Emulate Christ. Paul paints a picture of the humility of Christ so that we can do exactly that. So that we can adore him. So we can emulate him. And so that we in humility may have unity with one another. Because you see, I believe that is the key to Christian unity. It is to adore Christ. And it is to emulate him. And therefore to love others in the same way. So in this passage, we look to Christ. And tonight we're going to focus really on two main points. On Christ's humility and how he demonstrated humility. And then we'll see Christ's exaltation and how the Father exalted his Son. Alright, that's where we're going tonight. I hope you have your Bibles handy. There'll be some passages I'll just call out, but there'll be some that I ask you to turn there with me that we'll read together, okay? So first, we look at Christ's humility, verses 6 through 8. The first thing we see is that Christ demonstrated humility by adding humanity to himself, verses 6 and 7. Christ demonstrated humility by adding humanity to himself. So we start at the top of the parabola, okay? Now, this is the parabola that goes down and then goes back up, okay? Just, just so you know, right? Like, whoop, like, 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 like a U-shape, all right? We start at the top of the parabola, although we will quickly make our way down. But at the top, we see Christ for who he is and who he has always been. Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, he starts by talking of the preeminence of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He is not just simply like God. He is not a God, but he is God. God is three in one. Three persons, but one being. Sharing all of the same attributes. Being of the same nature. Existing together in unity for all of eternity. See, the, the incarnation, Jesus putting on human flesh, right? When we celebrate during Christmas time, the best time of year, the incarnation, that was not the beginning of God the Son. That's not when God the Son started to exist. No, the Son has always existed. Not in his humanity, but in his deity. For all of eternity. There was never a time in which God the Son did not exist. John 1 1 tells us about this. We won't, I mean, you can read all of John 1, it's wonderful. Jesus, being called the Word, okay, God the Son, also known as the Word, listen to what it says in verse 1, chapter 1 1 about God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, that's God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus himself even claims to be equal with God, as he says in John 5.18. In fact, listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 1, 15-19. Just listen to this. When he says he, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about God the Son. He says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that's Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Do you see that? All things, they were created through Jesus and for him. What else? And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's still talking about God the Son. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, that's Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, Jesus is God. 
This is a non-negotiable. You hear, sadly, people today say things like, well, Jesus was a good prophet. Or, yeah, Jesus was a good man. Or, yeah, he was a great example. But no, he's much more than that. He is God. This is fundamental. This is foundational. We cannot get this wrong. And we must be bold to proclaim the truth that Jesus is God. And yet, here in our passage, back in Philippians, it says here that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is God. And yet it's like his hands are not grasped. But they are open palms ready to serve and to sacrifice. So much so that Paul even says he emptied himself. That he emptied himself. Now, this does not mean that he stopped being divine. That, that he rid himself of his deity. It does not mean that he is no longer God. He still remained God and retained all of his divine nature. But he did not grasp and hold on to his divine rights and prerogatives. A.W. Tozer, he put it this way. He said, he veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. You see? He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. And one way in which he emptied himself, as it says in this passage, is that he was born in the likeness of men. He was born in the likeness of men. God himself. Born in the likeness of man. Bruce Ware, he describes this as subtraction by addition. Do you see that? It's subtraction by addition. It's subtraction. He, an emptying of himself. It's subtraction by adding human nature to his divine nature. I mean, do you see how it's an act of humility for God to add humanity to himself? I mean, this act alone, adding human nature to the divine nature, is an act of humility. But not only that, but the way in which it came about was humble as well. When he came to earth, and added humanity to himself, the incarnation. He didn't receive a, a royal fanfare like he deserved. He didn't radiate and shine beams of glory. He didn't have a halo around his head like some paintings show. No, he was born in a feeding trough with no audience there. Isaiah 53.2 says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was born a baby, a human like us, although without sin. I'm talking about God, the eternal creator God. James Boyce said, quote, There is no display of glory, no pomp, no marching of the feet of the heavenly legions. Instead, Christ lays his robe aside, the glory that was his from eternity. He steps down from the heavenly throne and becomes a baby in the arms of a mother in a far eastern colony of the Roman Empire. End quote. This is the eternal creator. And now, in his humanity... He's dependent on his mother to feed him. He had to learn how to be potty trained. He had to learn how to walk, how to talk. And yet the whole time, still God. This God emptied himself by adding humanity to himself. He did not subtract or, or surrender his deity in any way. He is 100% God and yet 100% man. 
Not 50% God and 50% man. It's not that he gave up half of his deity so that he could fill the other half of his humanity, and now he's half both. No, he is both fully God and fully man. The eternal Son of God, creator of all, added humanity to himself. What an act of humility. Right. I know for some, it's, it's a little heady, right? But you hang in there. That was the headiest part of tonight. All right, let's continue on as we look at the humility of Christ. Next, we see that Christ demonstrated humility by becoming a servant. Christ demonstrated humility by becoming a servant. Verse 7. Stay with me. He says, but empty himself by taking the form of a servant. So now as we continue our descent, as we continue our descent, right? It sounds like an airplane. As we continue our descent, we see that not only has Christ added humanity to himself, that's quite the descent, but he also took the form of a servant. Now the word here, for servant is doulos, which we looked at earlier in chapter 1. It could be translated as uh, servant or as slave. And ESV translates as servant. Your translation may say slave. Either way is fine. Either way, it communicates the idea that Jesus, who is God in his humility and in emptying himself, identifies himself with the lowest status, a servant. A slave. In fact, he said so himself in Mark 10.45. He said that he came not to be served, but to serve. And indeed, that's exactly what we see in his life. See, it's one thing to say it. Yeah, I came here not to be served, but to serve. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to live it out. And just look at his life in the Gospels. And you will see a humble servant loving others in compassion. And for me, one of the greatest pictures of Christ's humility as a servant is when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Listen to John 13, 1 through 5. Right before his last meal. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Do you see what's happening here? This is his last night. In just a few hours, He's going to be arrested and put through excruciating pain and torture. And this is how he spends his final night. If you knew tonight was your last night before being taken away to die, how would you spend it? Serving one another? Washing each other's feet? Jesus takes the lowest of low position. You know, back then, it was normal for the servant to wash people's feet. They, they, people would walk. They wouldn't drive in cars, obviously. You're walking on dusty roads, wearing sandals, often, if not barefoot. And they go into someone's house. And usually when they eat, they would recline at table and they would kind of lay down. 
Not sitting often on chairs and higher up on tables, but laying down so your feet would be in people's faces. And so, yeah, it was normal, customary to wash each other's feet. When I say each other's feet, what I mean is the servant would wash. The servant of the, of the, uh, of the host would wash their guest's feet. But it wasn't just the servant. Often it was the servant's servant. As in it was the lowest of the servants. Sometimes there would be multiple servants in a ranking of servants. And the absolute lowest servant in the house is the one who washes the feet of the guests. Jesus took this position. Verse 4 said he laid aside his outer garments. Kind of like he laid aside his royal robe. And he lowered himself to add humanity to himself. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus is the one who's taking the lowest position. Imagine as he goes to all 12 of his disciples. I mean, how would you respond if you were up next and Jesus washes your feet? How did they respond in seeing Jesus in the lowest position on his hands and knees washing their feet? We see how Peter responds. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. See, Peter realized, this is backwards. You're not supposed to wash my feet. What about Judas? Judas was there. In fact, Judas had already known that he was going to betray Jesus in a few hours. It tells us that in verse 2. He already knew he was going to betray him. Imagine that scene for both Jesus and Judas. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Did he just skip over Judas? No. Even knowing in just a few hours you're going to betray me, he still lowers himself and gets on his knees and washes the feet of his betrayer. Imagine being Judas, sitting there just watching Jesus wash his feet, thinking, man, I'm about to give you over for some pieces of silver, and you're going to die. These are your last hours here before you're arrested and you're washing my feet. I mean, what a scene. This is God in the flesh, the creator of all, using the water that he created, using a basin and a towel from the raw materials that he created, washing the feet of his disciples whom he created. God the Son, in his humility, lowered himself to become a servant. Now, while this is a striking scene, there's a scene that shows, I think, even further the magnitude of his humility and of his servanthood. And we now hit rock bottom, the very bottom of this parabola. And here we see Christ at the cross. Our next point is that Christ demonstrated humility by becoming obedient to death on a cross, as it says in verse 8. Christ demonstrated humility by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Let me read verse 8. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ demonstrated obedience to the Father in many ways, one of which was by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Son dying on the cross. Let's read the account of his crucifixion. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 27. Flip back a few books. Flip to your left. 
I'll give you time to turn there. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. We're going to read Matthew 27, 27 through 54. It's a bit of a long passage, but please just follow me here. This is the true historic account of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. Starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now when the sixth hour, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabatini," that is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, "This man is calling Elijah." And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. We'll stop there. The Son of God, the Creator, died for His creation, for His people. See, it's not that Judas got the best of him, finally. It's not that the Roman authorities got the upper hand. It's not that Satan was victorious. Jesus gave Himself up willingly in obedience to the Father who is the author of our salvation. You have the king of glory being beaten and mocked and spat upon by sinful humans 
nailed upon a cross. The most disrespectful, embarrassing, humiliating way to die. Reserved for the scum of the earth. God on a cross? I don't think there has ever in the history of the universe been anything more wrong or inappropriate than the innocent Son of God hanging on a cross. And not only did Jesus experience the physical agony and pain on the cross, but there was a spiritual element as well. See, the triune God has had perfect communion with one another for all of eternity. And here on the cross, the sins of the world were placed on the Son. And the Father poured His wrath on His Son. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on that cross, Christ did not just die a physical death, but He bore the wrath of God for all who believe. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death on the cross was perfect obedience to the Father to fulfill His plan of salvation to save His people. Christ took our place on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. And he gave us his righteousness. Christian, you are spiritually alive in Christ. Because he gave his life as a ransom for you. And if you are not a Christian, I plead with you to turn to Christ and repent of your sins. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not found in your parents. Salvation is not found in your church attendance. Salvation is not found in your good works. Salvation is not found in anything else. It is found in Christ and Christ alone. And not only is it found in Christ, but it is overflowing in Christ. As the hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Come to Christ and be washed by his blood. And be made white as snow. Jesus, in humility, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the bottom of the parabola, but it doesn't end here. Now we ascend, now we make our way back up, because the grave did not hold Christ. But three days later, as he said he would, he rose from the dead victoriously. And now we see the exaltation of Christ. So next, Christ's exaltation, verses 9 through 11. First, we see that Christ is exalted by the Father, as in the Father is the one who exalts the Son. Verses 9 through 11. Christ is exalted by the Father. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Speaking of Jesus. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So as we make our ascent, we see it is the Father now who is the acting one. Do you see that? It is the Father who exalts the Son. That he highly exalts him. That he super elevates Christ. And one way in which the Father has highly exalted the Son is by bestowing on him the name that is above every name. And I believe that name is Lord. That Lord is tied to his exaltation. To be exalted and to be highly exalted, it means that he reigns. It means that he is the one that others will give an account to. It means that he is the one that others will bow the knee to. It means that he is Lord. In his exaltation, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now for the believer, for the Christian, we've already done this. But there's a little bit in which I think we live in the already, not yet. That yes, we have already confessed that he is Lord. And we have already bowed the knee. But one day we will see him face to face and we will worship at his feet. What a glorious day that will be. But this saying, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that's not exclusive to just the believer only. It says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Even the non-believer, even the atheist thinks there is no God. Even Hitler, all will bow. All will confess. Everyone from every age will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even you. You will see him. And you will bow down before him. And you will confess that he is Lord. Let me ask you, will it be an adoration and joy because he is the one who has saved you? Or will it be out of fear and compulsion because you have no other choice but to bow the knee and to confess with your tongue because he is God, because he is Lord? If you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, One day you will bow the knee in submission because you will not be able to resist his lordship. One day you will confess with your tongue because you will not be able to deny his lordship. Will you wait for that day of judgment in which it will be too late? Yes, you will bow. You will confess, but it will be too late. Bow the knee today and confess today because he is Lord and that will never change. Will you submit to him as Lord now? Will you place your faith in him? Will you repent of your sins? Will you keep running away until it's too late? Until you reach judgment? In which case you will have no choice but to bow and confess anyways. What are you waiting for? One day you will bow the knee. You will confess. And to do so today means salvation. And to do so at judgment means condemnation. Jesus Christ is Lord. See, here we are now at the top of the parabola. Christ has been exalted. He is to be glorified. But even in the glory in which he is to receive, 
He still glorifies the Father. It's our last point, seen in verse 11. Christ glorifies the Father. In his exaltation, he is exalted by the Father. But even in his exaltation, Christ glorifies the Father. Verse 11, I'm not making it up. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Oh my goodness. Even in Christ's exaltation, we continue to see his humility. He doesn't compete with the Father for his glory. No. Even in his exaltation, it is all for the glory of God the Father. Incredible. Jesus, he's incredible. Is that not in line with everything that we've seen in Christ? Everything that Christ ever did was for the glory of his Father, right? He never had a goal or a desire that contradicted or compromised God's glory. Absolutely everything was for the glory of God. There is not a more fitting way, I think, to be at the top of the parabola than to be living for the glory of God. That's what Jesus was about, the glory of his Father. In his incarnation, in his crucifixion, in his exaltation, all for the glory of God the Father. It's beautiful. Well, as we close this extraordinary passage on our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, we need to remember the context in which Paul presents this. It is in the context of unity within the body. Remember that. For us to to maintain unity with one another. Paul says, we are to put on humility. We looked at that last week. He then shows us now the greatest example of humility, that which is found in Christ. Let me end with a few applicable points here. First, will, will you live out the humility of Christ? Remember, he's given this to us as an example, saying, adore Christ, emulate Christ. Will you live out the humility of Christ? If you are a Christian, I I ask you, how can you look at the humility, and I include myself in this, how can you look at the humility of Christ and then think that you are somehow above that? That It's good for Jesus to be humble, But you don't need to be humble like that. God the Son took on humanity. That right there is greater humility than we'll ever show. He took on humanity, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And yet you can't put on humility and serve others. And yet you can't put on humility and be united with others in the body of Christ. Will you show the humility of Christ to one another? Will you sacrifice and serve for the sake of others, considering their interests more significant, or them more significant than yourself? Or will you be content just to do the things that require the least of you, to do the things of your own interests and not the interest of others? Second, will you live for the glory of God? Will you live for the glory of God? All that Christ did was for the glory of his Father. Think of all that you do in a day. I hear, oh, I'm so busy, I do so much. Okay, great. Think about all that. All that you do. Are you doing so for the glory of God? In your speech? in your action, in your goals, in your pursuits, in your schooling, in your practicing, in your this and that? Is it for His glory? Or is it for your own glory? For your parents' glory? Are there things in your life that you know are not glorifying to God? What are they? 
And will you hold on to them and keep them in your life? Or will you rid your life of those things and pursue his glory instead? Lastly, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? If you do, and you are a Christian, then submit to him as Lord. He reigns. He is on the throne. Bow the knee to him and worship him. And if you are not a Christian, I ask you, why do you reject that Jesus is Lord? Why do you not bow the knee and confess with your tongue? One day you will. Please do not wait until then. Please do not wait until judgment. It will be too late. But today, in faith, confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in Him. Romans 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do not wait. Confess and believe. Well, as we close, we do this on occasion, not often. I want to spend some time in silent prayer. And for some it may be awkward, but let it be awkward. It'll be quiet. We can use silence sometimes in our lives. If you're in the Lord, use this time to thank God and thank Christ for His humility and His sacrifice and exalt Him, praise Him, and ask that He would give you the same humility and unity with one another. If you are not in the Lord, I encourage you, use this time in faith. Ask that he would give you the faith to believe in a heart of repentance and confess that Jesus is Lord. Use this time in silent prayer, about a minute or two, and then I'll close this in prayer.